Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, uh, May 17th, 2016. This is episode 1788 of the Survival Podcast. And it's a Tuesday, that means it's a Just Jack show. And uh, as we made the change not too long ago, all Tuesday shows are now voted on by you, the audience. Yes, I still need to get the poll up. For June shows, it looks like there will only be about two weeks of voting on that, but we get five Tuesdays in May, so we still have plenty of time for you guys to vote on that. I'll try to get that done today, but i got to get the expert counsel's questions to them today. Oh boy, you know that song I played at the end of yesterday's song, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead? Man, I'm feeling that way. I really am, but uh, I think I'm starting to dig out of all the new stuff that we've got going, Granddaddy's Gun Club and all kinds of stuff like that, so... Hopefully, I'll get to sleep a little bit here and there. Anyway, what are we going to talk about today? What did you guys vote on? Uh, the number two, even though this is the third show of the month, the number two winning show um, of the uh, poll was finding the right property to turn into a homestead. And I'm going to talk today more about how to evaluate property than how to do the, the real estate thing, like how to actually buy the property, search for the property, how to negotiate, haggle. Because I did a lot of that in the bug out location show that we did for the first Tuesday show. So everything that I'm going to say today, just assume that also applies to this, and then we're adding this to it to actually refine down. The difference is from that show to today, we're looking for a place that we're going to live at. When we're looking at a bug out location, it might be a vacation home, it might be a true fallback location, it might be a hunting retreat, it might just be a family property that you know looks like it's a lake house, but it's set up as a fallback location. It could be any of those things, but we're probably not residing in it full time. Well, when we're looking for a homestead, by its very nature, this is a place that provides for us, and we're building it out over time. So I think it's no real surprise that this topic um, ended up doing well in the poll with you guys. I mean, in case anybody hasn't been paying attention for like the last 15 years, um, homesteading is once again very popular. And it's popular in many ways from tiny urban homesteads. Uh, and by the way, if the Dreyas family wants to sue me for saying urban homestead, go ahead. I, you know, my lawyer has an IQ with, you know, more than two digits in it. So go ahead and try it. Um, anyway... Uh, to mid-sized acreages, to properties with you know that are so big they have a back 40 and larger. And really everything in between from one extreme to the other. And I think we should ask ourselves today, you know, why? Why, has we, why have we seen this resurgence of homesteading in America? Um, and not just America, much of the modern developed world at least, you know, is flirting with this idea. It's not just permaculturists. There's... People all over that want a little bit bigger of a piece of land. They want a garden. There's community gardens going in everywhere. You know, uh, rabbit breeding and, and raising rabbits for meat and quail and chickens and all are white hot everywhere. So why? I think that a lot of our people today are starting to realize how hollow what we call progress is. Um, they're realizing when they have a house that with all the expenses, you know, all in, is eating up 30% or more of their household income, especially now that may, many people are losing 10 to 15% in addition to you know healthcare costs, um, and you know they're at half of their income or more just for those two expenses. This just doesn't work. 
And having this big house as a status symbol with this itty-bitty lot doesn't really make sense either. And, you know, I actually forecasted way back in 2009 what I called the death and rebirth of the suburbs, that many suburbs would dwindle and die, be torn down, and people would go in and basically bulldoze houses and remove fences. And that's, you know, begun to happen in places like Detroit. Um, and that other s suburbs would actually be reborn. Things that were laid out with more space and more freedom would begin to be reborn. That not all the suburbs would go away in the death of the suburbs, and not all of them would be reborn, but there would be this kind of a migration within our own communities. People saying, I don't want this anymore. And I think we're starting to see that. You know, really, the truth is our nation was founded as a nation of homesteaders. And even back, you know, 200 years ago, 150 years ago, There were people with small little bitty pieces of land and a little house, and there were people with large pieces of land and in a farm. But everybody that was here, the vast majority anyway, all but the uber-wealthy, were using their land to produce for themselves. And even the uber-wealthy had staffs that were managing their gardens and their lands and things like that. I went to the Vanderbilt house uh, in North Carolina, and it was just opulence to the excess But you could see the way the house was run that a lot of what the, the family and staff used came from the property itself. It was pretty amazing. So from the wealthiest to the dirt poor, homesteading has a long tradition in America. It is indeed, again, how this nation was settled. So I think it's a return to our roots, and it's a return to reality and logic. We'll be talking about how to find a property to, to make all these things happen for you today. Before we do... Let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1788. We have the doctor's right and the rise of black churches, which I was sure I was going to read until I read the second segment we have today, the tyranny of the majority. And I, I see so much of this in the modern day, I have to read it. I won't even have to explain it, I'll just be able to read it to you. But in other news, the threshing machine is patented and puts a lot of people out of work. The swing riots of 1830 will be caused by too efficient processing of grain. Swinging is the old way of threshing. New Hampshire is the ninth state to ratify the Constitution. We now have a national government. Bread riots in France. A factory owner said bread should be made cheaper. The workers assumed he meant by lowering wages. His factory is now a smoking ruin. Which means the workers don't have a job. Duh. <sighs> anyway. John Adams has published his... Defense of the Constitutions of Government of the United States of America. One of his arguments is that government should be a mix of a governor, a senate, and elected representatives. It is a mistake to have a single assembly of elected officials for government, since over time, the majority will push out the minority. Friends will take the place of opponents, judges will be replaced by those sympathetic to the majority. In some cases, people will give up honor for advancement, power, and money. The basic self-love of the majority drives government to support only those who love them back. Only those willing to bend the knee will ever get their way. A new nobility will be created in near perpetuity. Adams calls it the tyranny of the majority. And he contends that frequent elections will not fix it. Does any of this sound familiar? My take by Alex Shrugged, I was astounded by the Supreme Court argument that term limits in the House and Senate were not needed because at any election the voters could simply term limit an official by voting for someone else. In reality, this rarely happens. The established only supports it, supports its own. If it's not Bob the good old boy, then it's Sue the good old gal. If Ralph the Radical comes anywhere close to winning, the establishment will make sure his election tanks. 
Frequent elections or term limits are not the full answer because the establishment will simply substitute Bob for Sue and Sue for Bob, but never Ralph the Radical. No one likes Ralph. He can't reach across the aisle and get things done. I don't want a king. I don't want to get things done unless people who hate each other agree that it's a good idea. Then I can feel reasonably sure that it really is a good idea. The original Constitution was not a perfect answer. It was one possible answer that needed tweaking, but over more than 200 years we have tweaked it a little too much, and we need to back it out to an earlier version, one that was still working. You know, my thoughts here, and make no mistake, my, my goal would be no state whatsoever. But if we're going to have a government, it should follow its contract with its people, which is our Constitution. And uh, that, con that contract should be amended, if ever, by the people in their favor rather than the government in its favor. Um, but it's an interesting thing. I've never quite heard anybody put it the way Alex did here. I don't want to get things done unless people who hate each other agree that it's a good idea. That's an interesting thought. If people that hate each other agree that something's a good idea, then it probably is. I think that kind of is not a perfect litmus test, but one worth at least considering. Because that means it's actually being done for the good of both sides rather than the good of one side. If I'm willing to do something with you and we absolutely positively hate each other, then it must be a, must be at least we believe that it's a good thing for both of us. I think there's a little too much of that going on right now. I think there's some people in the Congress and the Senate that legitimately hate each other, but they both really want the same things, which is power and control, and they're willing to do it because it does benefit both sides of their sides, not ours. more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah, I, I guess so. I also want to point out, Uh, I had a conversation with a good friend this week about something that happened in 1913. And I was explaining to him how it actually sounded like you were getting more control over your government and you got less. And it ties right into this. The original Constitution, uh, senators were appointed by their state legislature. So you voted for your, your state legislature in Texas or Alabama or whatever. And then they appointed two senators from your state to go to Washington and represent you. In 1913, that, among with many other things, was changed, and senators became directly elected by the people. It's also the same year we got the income tax and the installment of the Federal Reserve. Anybody smelling a conspiracy theory? So let me tell you one of the problems with that. What we now have is a greater tyranny of the majority, because unlike the senators that were appointed Um, we can't just recall our senators simply and easily and efficiently if they're doing something we really don't want at the state level. Where up until 1913, when we made that change, and your senator was going to do something your state really didn't want to do, and you had contacted your local reps, much smaller, closer representation of government, um, your state legislature could recall its senators. And many times they didn't, but they said, hey, you know, we don't want this, so, you know, don't do it. Just saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same, and sometimes the more they change, the worse they get. My take by Jack Spierka. With that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, folks, have you ever wondered how I seem to know so much about so many things in the self-reliance industry? Well, one reason why is that I've been a loyal subscriber to Backwoods Home Magazine for over 20 years. With great writers like Masada Yub, Jackie Clay, and Dave Duffy, they have it all, from homesteading to guns to libertarian views, along with a great website and forum. Check them out at BackwoodsHome.com to learn more. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. 
That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. So again, real quick reiteration, I recently did a show, I guess it was two weeks ago, on finding a bug-out location, and I talked a lot about the realtor side components to that and said that applies to anything, a homestead, just a regular house, a vacation home, a bug-out location. So I'm not going to rehash that, and I'm going to recommend if you didn't listen to that show, you go listen to it, and you add it to everything that I'm going to say today. Uh, I do want to point out one of the pieces of advice that I gave there and some feedback already from a listener who benefited from it. So one thing I said about real estate, and God does this apply to a homestead because you're going to get more emotional about a homestead than a bug out location or just a house. And emotion drives stupidity in real estate. Write that down. Put it in OneNote in your phone or something. Emotion drives stupidity in real estate. We do not get emotional. We have multiple plans, and we're always willing to walk away from a deal. That was the upshot of what I was saying. But again, emotion drives stupidity in real estate. That's fine when you're the seller. Okay, and and the other side's being dumb, and they're willing to throw money at you and be stupid. You can take their money, but you don't want to be that person. Okay, all right. So I said that, and this is an email that came to me from Mike, and Mike said, "I listened to the show." Um, I'm sorry, I'm one one line ahead again. This is the bug out location sale where I said all those things about walking away. Uh, it says my wife and I walked away from a real estate purchase today. Thank you. I listened to the show yesterday, especially the part about being willing to refuse an unreasonable counteroffer. I noted the timestamp between 57 and 70 minutes and had my wife listen to it this morning. After seeing 40 homes, we found one that meets many of our criteria, but it's missing some. We already have a closing date scheduled on our home, and, we're, and we're, we are selling, and we feel some pressure. We made an offer, and we thought it was fair, and actually 5K more than what our realtor thought, but it was still 10K below asking. The counter was both weak and final, and we told them, good luck, see you later. Let me read that again. The counter offer was weak and said, this is our final offer. Like, you know, final answer on that millionaire show, right? This is our final offer. And we told them, good luck, see you later. The thing that made it easy to walk away was our plan B. My wife already found five places we could rent while we're looking for that right home to buy. I wonder if they will come back and want to accept our offer since their home has already been on the market for 45 days. Thing is, I think I've moved on. Plan B is modern, is modern, plan B is a modern survival technique and the way to keep your freedom and avoid making a decision based upon fear. Thanks. Mike in the unfriendly to farm state of Michigan. So he was willing to walk away over $10,000 on a real estate purchase. He said, I wonder if they'll be back. I immediately thought, they're going to be back. This is, this is, this is so great. So, um, I get this email. Um, that first email came at 3.02 p.m. on May the 4th. <laughs> May 4th, 2016, 4.29 p.m. This is like an hour and a half later. Update. The sellers just came back and accepted our offer because we were willing to walk away. Thanks again. Amazing. Stupidity. Drives or, or uh, emotion drives stupidity in real estate. Real estate, okay. Remember that. This was the email I sent to him because I read these in a row before I even got the response. I batched my emails, 
And I, I, I did not say effing. I said the actual word in my email. I put LOL. I effing knew this email would show up within a day of the first one. And uh, he said, Roger, it's like taking a step into the dark. It's a little scary, but you got to do it. So I, I tell you that story, real world, from a listener, from one show, $10,000 put back into their pocket because they didn't let emotion drive their decisions in real estate. So we're going to talk about a lot of stuff today. It's going to get a lot of, a lot of you guys excited about actually getting that homestead. And I think this show might actually help a lot of you that already have a property think about how to actually implement the homestead that you already have the opportunity to implement. Okay, But I don't want those of you looking to find the place to get emotional because you start seeing, oh, I can put this there and that there, and this is just perfect. And then you, you become emotional and you lose the logical reality. In real estate, again, you have to be a cold-hearted prick. Okay? This is, and you only have to do it for the negotiation portion of real estate. You, you cannot care about somebody's sob story. I don't care if the house has been in their family for 29 million generations. I don't care if their kid did their homework on the roof. I don't give a damn. Because the day that that deal closes, unless they're a relative or something, I'm never going to see them again. And my feel good will last about 30 seconds. And whatever I've lost will last the rest of my life. So you have to be tough. Um, but now I kind of want to move in with that caveat and talk about what is the difference between a home and a homestead. What makes a home a homestead? Um, first and foremost, homesteads produce versus consume your resources. And the reality is any dwelling that you're going to live and make a life in is going to consume some of your resources. It has to. The things break and have to be repaired. Um, there, there's a lot of things that go on throughout uh, owning a property. Uh, there is going to be property tax almost no matter what you do, though. You know, I've owned properties with extremely low property taxes. Our, our house in Arkansas property taxes are $316 a year, but it's still an expense. Most of us are not able to go out and purchase a house for cash. Even if we do, let's say we go find a great house and because we can pay cash, we, we can walk away from the deal $200,000, we write a check, we've saved our pennies, put our $200,000, we never spend another dime toward the purchase of that property. It's still just eight dollars $200,000. It's a long time before it gives us $200,000 back. So let's not get romantic about the concept that the, the homestead provides more than it consumes, but it needs to provide more than just some walls and a roof and a place to sleep and throw dinner parties, which is what the you know average American home has become. It's become a massive expense, possibly the largest expense most people ever have. We've been tricked into believing that a home leveraged heavily into debt with snow equity is still an investment. It's not an investment. It's a liability. It's not an asset. Paid for real estate is an asset, indeed. It still has some liabilities. But a heavily leveraged home, 10% down, 3% down on FHA, whatever, is a liability. That doesn't mean it's not one we're not willing to accept because it can do a lot for us, and we can certainly have a homestead that has a mortgage. But we got to balance those things so that we can actually live the lifestyle that we dream of. But we have to also say to ourselves, now that we have this place, or if we're looking for this place, how can it be made to give back? at least some of what it's consuming. If we have a garden, it gives us food. If we raise rabbits, it gives us meat and it improves fertility to the garden that gives us more food. 
right? If we're able to raise quail, and especially if we can grow some of their food on the property to feed them, now we get eggs and meat and more fertility, and we start to stack those things together. If we set things up in a way that we can actually run a small homestead business, and we'll talk about what exactly that means in, in a bit, but then it provides basically the, the, the alternative to the expense being leased land or an office, If we can run a business from home, even if it's not a direct homestead business, not directly tied to the homestead activities, which would be what I do. Okay, I run a podcast from home. Then it, it, it does a lot more than just I don't have to have an office somewhere. I also don't have to drive. I have almost no vehicle expense. I have a paid-for truck that I put maybe 5,000 miles a year on. It's a diesel. I'll probably die before the, the, the motor runs out on that truck. The frame will probably rust out before the motor runs out. So I have almost no vehicle vehicle expense. I have no fuel expense. I have you know very minimal insurance cost on the vehicle because it's considered just a uh, occasional use vehicle. It, it, these types of things drive down our costs. So those are other ways to think about producing versus consuming, providing a place to work. I, I just put out a story today on Facebook, just on the personal page. I'm not sure if I put it on the TSP page or not, but there's a, a new company out. It's like K-12.com or something like that, and it's basically making every form of school you can imagine available online. You can have public school or private school online. You can have homeschooling, unschooling online, and it's, it's, it's rolling out nationwide. Well, there's going to be a lot of people, I think, that do the following math. Spouse A makes the lower amount of money in the, the household, let's say $40,000. Um, and Spouse B makes a better salary, let's say $80,000. Spouse B is the one that has, because I'm not going to say mom and dad, because it could go the other way, right? But Spouse B um, has the job that covers the health insurance. And so you are now in a situation where you've got maybe three kids. Two of them are in school. One is pre, you know, preschool age. So you have one kid that needs you know, child care all day long, two kids that need some form of child care. There's a major expense there, and spouse A is driving to and from work every day, uh, and they're having to maintain a good quality vehicle to be able to be sure they can get to work and back every day. So that has an expense with it. And health insurance is, you know, again, on the other side of the table. So their, their income is grand, but after they pay tax on it, it's more like thirty. And there's at least $10,000 in expense for the car, the kids, etc. Well, if I quit my job, go home and make $20,000 and homeschool my kids, we have a better life and we have the same money. Now, do you think it's that hard to figure out to make $20,000 from home, either part-time, with your own business, what have you? It's really not. It's really not. And the numbers may actually work out to where you make maybe fifteen grand and you're even. So if you make $20,000, you're five ahead and you're homeschooling your kids. That's another way to look at homesteading, and it's something that we, we need to understand, that they're multifunctional, that it's not just about a place for rabbits and chickens and gardens and fruit trees, that a true homestead becomes the family's true base of operations for everything they do in life versus just the place they sleep, just the place they sleep and have dinner parties to try to impress the neighbors. We have another expense, you know, the True Green Chemlon guy, so the HOA doesn't get mad at you, etc. We need to get out of that thinking and start thinking, how do we function, stack our lives, including where we live, our homesteads? Um, and homesteads are generally planned for the long term. It amazes me how people use the word to just throw it around, starter home, starter home, starter home. 
people I watch on these stupid realtor shows on TV, they're buying a $350,000 house, and that, that pea-brain bimbo announcer they have, Suzanne Wang, she's like, Jill works in customer service, and Tom is the sanitary worker for the city. Their budget is $375,000. They're looking for a starter home. <laughs> you wonder why our country's on a downhill track. That, that explains it all right there. I did a blog post long before I even started TSP that, that, that said the cause of misery in America isn't, uh, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was, it's house hunters. Basically, house hunters shows you all you need to know about the decline in America of wealth. Because you have pea brains making stupid decisions on real estate, buying property they can't afford. This is before the mortgage meltdown, by the way. Um, so it's just interesting there. But homesteads are generally more of a long-term plan. When we find a homestead, a property that we're going to really invest in and invest our lives in and make something we love, we generally don't plan on leaving. We don't plan on looking for greener grass and greener pastures and something different. We have a long-term plan. It actually is to provide for our family for a generation or more. That, that is a defining characteristic of a homestead. That doesn't mean you, you don't homestead a property for a while and decide you do want something better or you want something different or you want something smaller or you want to get back closer because you went too far or whatever. That's all okay, but the general mentality, the overall macro view is this is a long-term plan. And the biggest thing is homesteads are not created by builders. They're created by their owners. So homes are just manufactured in America, even if they're custom homes and you pick out your freaking granite and whatever, it, it, you still you're not creating your home. It's it's still a template. It's still a manufactured component. It, it just is. It, it's it's not much different than buying a car. What color seats would you like in that? Some cars you can pick from two or three different interior colors. Some cars you get like two interior colors for these colors of outside, and if you change the color on the outside of something else, then you get one color that's this way, or what have you. And then some cars, you know, that are higher end, you can pick anything you want. They'll paint the damn thing pink and yellow if you really want it. They don't really care. It's how houses are. They're a manufactured product. A homestead is an extension of the family that does the homesteading. It becomes a part of who and what they are. And that makes it very different, and it makes people value their property for entirely different reasons and value their community for entirely different reasons. It gets us out of the mentality that is the madness that is America's real estate nightmare. Because this is, this is why they have HOAs. This is why we have ordinances. This is why bit, you know, blue-haired biddies call and complain and whine and piss and moan that somebody down the street parked their car on their own grass for this reason. We need to make sure that property values continue to go up. Okay, you're saying two things when you say that. Number one, I hope that I always have my property taxes go up for the rest of my life so that by the time I've paid my house off, the value's gone up so much that the property taxes equal the original mortgage payment because I'm a retard. Okay, that's what you're saying, number one. Number two, you're saying my goal in the appreciation and accumulation of wealth in my property is to become wealthy at the expense of my children. And some of you are scratching your head and some of you are going, holy shit, I get it, I can't believe we do this. Here's what I mean. If we continue to force property values up in a constant basis, like everybody in the HOA dreams of, you are literally ensuring that if you have a kid that's 10 years old, when they're 25 or 30 looking for their first home, that they're not going to be able to afford to buy one unless they're in the upper 20% of society. It's madness. 
And I believe that the homesteading look at property changes the value equation to which value to the, the values to the individual versus to the city versus to the state versus to the taxing entity. And that means that we fo focus more on the real value of what it provides us versus the value that they extract from it on a, on a routine basis. So that's what I mean when I say homesteads are created by their owners, not a builder. So what to look for in a homestead? Um, I always want to start out with size because it's a place people are most attached to and sometimes making the best decisions due to or the worst decisions due to. It's up to you, but you need to think really hard about it. Um, when we started coming back to Texas, I was really hoping to get something like 10 acres or more. And we just couldn't find a property that worked for us on all cylinders that was that big. We found some that were that big that we could afford, but they were rural enough that we couldn't get Internet access, and I needed to have that function stack with the office in the home. That had to happen. Uh, or they were too far from Dorothy's dad, who was in the beginning stages of Alzheimer's, and that was a big part of why we were coming back. Um, or it looked really good. It seemed like you'd be able to do whatever you want, but when you checked into it, oh, there's actually a property owner's, a homeowner's association. No, you can't have chickens. You can put a fence in, but you got to go before a committee and beg them and, and show them a model of the fence, shit like that. And, you know, we looked at building in some places that were really rural looking, and they had these, these draconian property owner associations. And that was one of them. It was down by a lake. It was dirt roads. There's cattle. Can't have chickens. Cows fine. Chickens not. The hell. You know, can we put fencing in? Well, yeah, you got to make a model. You had to make a three-dimensional model of your property with a three-dimensional, like, like, like a, uh, what do they used to call them? The, the kids did in shoebboxes, you know, in school, right? <laughs> they, they had to, you to build a model, like, like, a, like a class project, and then bring it before these old blue hairs and beg them to put a fence on your own property. Not going to happen. So that started making us have to whittle things down and I went from wanting more than 10 to being okay with five to yeah we'll look at two and three acre properties if they're right we eventually found a three acre property this is what I've learned three acres will wear you out and kick your ass there are pieces of my property that I go two weeks without stepping on or more sometimes and I see it because it's all visible but I don't necessarily go look and see what's going on in that square foot of property And, and that makes me realize, while I would like more, I have plenty. And frankly, my property, you know, you guys know, is extremely rocky. And if my property was really fertile soils, I could do everything I'm doing and more on half of it. And it might be easier in some ways. So really kind of check your reasons for wanting larger pieces of property. If I were ever to come into just like a just like a stupid amount of money where I could have anything I wanted, I probably would really consider either selling this place or turning it into some kind of learning center or something, some kind of charity, and I'd look for a bigger property. And I would look for, you know, if I money is no object, 100 acres, 200 acres, something like that. But 80% of it or more would stay wooded and be hunting land. And 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 walking and trails and stuff like that. That's that's what I would want it for. I don't want to be a full-time farmer. I have my nice little farm. I like it that way. It's enough, and it's enough work. We're thinking about hiring a young farmhand a few days a week just so there's a couple days a week that we can take off things like washing and packaging nine dozen eggs every single day. Holidays, weekends, ducks don't care. Eggs come out of their butts. So really check, gut check your reasoning for size. Locations. I have kind of, over the years, broken this down into four actual types of locations and only four and I would say that I can make if I have to, if you want to challenge me 
any property fit one of the four. Really, really easily, honestly. And you might have it like, is it? It could be a little bit between the two, but it's going to fall off the fence one way or the other. And they are urban, suburban. So anything that's your typical neighborhood layout that's in the city center, town limits, things like that, um, looks like a subdivision. All right, that's that's to me urban suburban is one. There's no real reason to go urban suburban and make five. They have so many of the same and similar characteristics. They have so many of the same and similar problems. You can be in some cities and truly be urban and have less harassment from code officials and city officials than being suburban, because a lot of the urban properties are lower cost properties in some some of the cities that are kind of on the downturn. And they just don't bother to, to, to worry about stuff like this. Or anything you do is better than that was what was there, like Detroit, like parts of St. Louis where the urban farming guys are, etc. Okay? But when you get out into truly suburban where there's a little bit more money involved, um, then you get into these situations where there's a lot of people that are pain in the ass, yuppie assholes, that bitch about everything everybody else does. But there's a lot of overlap in those two. So that's one type of property. In my personal opinion, it is the least desirable and most problematic property to homestead. But if you know what you want to do, you verify that it's legal and, and, and available to do, and you're smart about how you implement it, I've seen some amazing homesteads on those suburban, urban type properties. So that's a good thing if you can make it work. And because they're yet generally smaller, they're easier to manage, You can intensely manage every square inch of the property, and you can have amazing productivity off of those properties. If you're going to do it, kind of the best way is when you have these properties that are they're suburban, but they're a little bit bigger. They're like a half an acre, somewhere in that range, or a little bigger even. And like the whole front of the property is treed, and then the house is tucked back in the trees, and then you have a backyard that's like a quarter acre. And nobody can really see in there. Then you can usually get away with things that you're even not supposed to do. Nobody bitches. Unless you got cackling roosters or something like that, it, you can almost you know break and bend everything and no one cares. But if you're in a typical suburb where everybody can look, just look over your fence and see your neighbor, somebody's going to bitch about a lot of the things you probably want to do. So to me, this is least desirable. The next is the urban-rural fringe. I live exactly in that particular type of property. It was one of the things I was trying to do but didn't think I would be able to pull off but ended up, in the end, able to do. The urban rural fringe means the people we're talking about that are the pain in the asses are like a mile down the road or so. And yet they have no say at all whatsoever about what goes on here. We're just outside of those areas. That is getting harder and harder to do because cities are annexing more property, counties are taking greater control because they want more revenue, so they go in and they start implementing codes even in areas that are unincorporated from the county seat. Right? They do it at the county level because, well, if they have to pull permits, then we get permit revenue. Right? If they have to ask us first, then there's going to be some piece of paper that has to be filed with a check. Well, that creates a whole new level of bureaucracy of people that issue those papers and sign off on them, a whole new level of inspection, a whole new opportunity for people to complain, because now there's a bureaucratic level to complain to. So you got to be airtight when you're making a decision. Well, this is not under city uh, governance. This is in the county's jurisdiction. Well, what does the county say about all this stuff? 
But if you find that sweet spot, it's perfect. And I'll tell you what makes it perfect. Everything you would like to have available to you from services uh, to, to, to being able to go get materials, uh, things like that. So like our place in West Virginia, the Elijah Spring Farm, you know, it, it's, it's, you can do anything you want. No one would ever care. I mean, you could run around naked. You could ride a bull naked through the pasture and no one would care. Okay. But when we wanted something as simple as wood chips, we pretty much have to harvest and make our own because there's just not a place you can drive up to and get wood chips. Well, right here, I can drive down the road literally three and a half miles. A guy with a great big machine will dump two loads, two yards of wood chips in my truck for 30 bucks, and I can be back home in 10 minutes. That's just one example of what's available. The other thing that's available to you is a market. When you're further out, it's harder to access the market. Those pain-in-the-ass people, the irony is they don't want to see any of this stuff, but they want to buy it. Right? They're the ones that want to buy beyond organic foods. They're the ones that, that you know, it's yuppie pain in the ass people that come here and drive an hour to buy two or three or four dozen duck eggs from Dorothy. They live in suburbs in Plano, some of them. Where if you tried to do this down the road from them, where they could just get it, some of the very people that come here I know would be complaining about their property values. So by being close enough to them, you have access to them as customers. But being far enough away that they can't bitch about what you're doing, even though they want the result of what you're doing, they just don't want to see the activity. They don't want to smell it. They don't want to hear it, whatever it is. Or even if they're okay with it, their neighbor's not. Right. So that is the sweet spot. It gives you the ability to have access to good employment. It gives you the ability to have access to things like airports where you can travel Uh, easily and, and what have you. It gives you a large body count to pull from if you want to hire help. It has so much going for it. But it's the big thing is it has the services and the market and the freedom of the next level, which is rural. We step out to rural, then we're talking about it's a trip to town. And town's not very big. And if you need certain things, you got to go two towns over to get to a city. And that might take all day to go and come back but probably not quite all day. All right? That's just kind of how I, I look at rural. Rural is the farmlands of Pennsylvania. And rural has gotten more and more, like I was just talking about with the urban rural fringe. You look at it and would think no one's going to bitch, and you can do whatever you want, but then you find out the counties have begun to reach further and further out in their level of control. But it's easier to find complete freedom rural than in the fringe, but it's worth looking for it in the fringe. Okay, the the issue with rural is you're far enough from the market that it's more difficult to access it. Darby Simpson, full time farmer that's part of our expert council, meets what I call the criteria to define a property as rural perfectly. He's on farmland, so he's not going to be jacked with. He's about an hour in each direction from major markets: Indianapolis, and I don't remember the other one. Okay, but it's a little bit, I think it's like a little less than an hour to one and a little more than an hour to the other, but it's kind of almost right in between the two major markets. But there's really nothing in between those major markets that's, that's a city. So when you're more than an hour out from your major markets, I consider that truly rural. And, for, and it's easier to find total freedom, but you still have to check really, really close. The downside of rural is not just not having access to the market, materials, You don't have access to the materials. You don't have access to services, to goods, things like that. And when you do go somewhere to get them, it takes more time. Time is money. It takes more fuel. Fuel is money. 
Okay, and you will find as you become a homesteader, the further you go, the more things break, the more things you realize. Oh, I should have had that in reserve, and I didn't. And you can correct that problem, but right now it's critical. I need it now. And the difference between be, having to be able, be able to go get what you need now, 15 minutes versus three hours, is a big deal. Okay, the last is what I call remote. The difference between rural and remote is a gray line that you decide for yourself. But to me, what remote means is I may not be able to tell you who all my neighbors are, not because not everybody's friendly, but I'm not sure where they all live. That's one way to look at it. Remote is I'm out there. I'm, I'm in the song, Way Out Here, right, by Josh Thompson. I, I, you, when you say town, you're talking about the little place that has a population of about 40, and it's a drive to get there. It, it, it is not close access to anything. We're not talking about driving an hour to get to a major market. We're talking about maybe three or four. It is the easiest place to find freedom because even when there's regulations that say you can't do something, there's generally nobody to enforce them. And there's generally nobody to complain about it. But now, having a job, if we're going to not be a full-timer, is difficult. If we're going to run a business, if it's an e-commerce business, as long as we can get internet, It's fine. But if it's going to be a business that we need access to a retail market, it's far more complicated. And we all have to make our own decisions. Building community, finding friends, finding friends for your children, etc. The further out you go, the more difficult that becomes. So that's those levels, and it's a good thing to think about. Most people want to really think about food production. And I don't want to get into like the management techniques and all of food production, but I do want to say this. There are people that get married to these romantic ideas. We'll have a milk cow, and we'll have some goats, and we'll have three pigs. And um, Just assume right off that you're going to start out very, very slow with this. When you first, If, if you haven't worked with livestock, um, you're going to find that one of the very first rules is as you begin working with livestock, you're going to kill more than you're going to uh, be successful with in some instances. You're going to make mistakes, and it's easier to to figure out you're making a mistake when you're dealing with one or two animals or one or two species than when you're dealing with ten different things at the same time and you're running around like a chicken with your head cut off. Uh, and you end up cutting the ch- heads off all your chickens just so it's one less thing to worry about. And so we've learned that here. And we've slowly we backed off and now we're slowly reintegrating things with more information. But, um, guys, i got to tell you, if your goal is to produce your own food products from animals... You could do a lot worse than having a few quail tractors uh, or a few quail and some some stacked racks, maybe some rabbits, chickens, and possibly a few ducks. I mean, those give you so much flexibility with chickens. You can incubate eggs. You can you know you can produce meat. Uh, you know, obviously the Cornish cross chicken is the the best meat chicken. But homestead chickens, dual purpose birds like uh, buff Orpingtons, etc., produce meat that's just fine. It's just not a large quantity of meat. But at the homestead production level, it works. It worked for my grandparents. Probably worked for your grandparents. Quail outproduced chickens, you know, by a long shot for that use, though. And it's something that you can be more likely to be able to do in those urban, suburban areas. You know, two or three quail tractors in your backyard aren't going to attract a lot of attention. And if anybody does ask what they are, they're pets. They're quail. They're my pet quail. You know what I mean? People don't. People do have pet chickens, but that answer doesn't usually work uh, for people. And you need larger apparatuses to to properly house a chicken. I'm not anti-chicken. 
right? I'm very pro-duck, but I'm not anti-chicken, right? It doesn't, doesn't work that way. I'm anti-chicken for my property, but for different reasons than we're talking about here. But just realize that for most homesteaders, especially if you're not a full-time homesteader, small livestock is really a better way to go. It's going to give you plenty of food production. Rabbits can produce more meat for you than just about anything else you can do on an ROI basis based on how much effort it takes, how much cost it takes, uh, how much knowledge it takes, how much effort processing is. Um, I just talked to a friend who was over uh, Friday night, and uh, they, uh, they, they killed a cow. And he's, he's been grinding meat for two days. You know, if you go slaughter two rabbits, you can be done in 15 minutes. I processed 41 quail on Saturday by myself. It took two hours, and I took my time. And that two hours included all the processing, all of the cleanup, um, all the washing, all, and then every, putting every single bird in, in four counts each into vacuum seal bags, vacuum sealing them, and putting them into the freezer in two hours. And that's a good supply of meat and dinner for us now um, from very little real work. And I, I can only imagine how long that would have taken if I was slaughtering even a, like a small Dexter cow, you know, a miniature Dexter or something like that. I might, I might still be working on it. Um, again, rabbits, lightning fast. And all of these small livestock, when properly managed, provide fertility for your other needs. So I think if we start thinking that way, now, don't let me take your dream. Everybody has different dreams. And if you want cattle and horses and all that other stuff and you need a property for that, that's fine. But I think even if you have a property where you can do that, if you're new to this, building your core off of this small livestock uh, you know, quartet here makes a ton of sense. And taking your time and maybe just start with one thing. Start with quail. Start with rabbits. Get that system working Know how many real hours it takes a week of your time, how much money it takes, what your ROI is, and then say, now that this is working, what is the next thing to add? So before I move on from livestock, kind of one, of the, one more thing I want to point out about working with smaller livestock is it's a lot easier to systematize in a way that someone that's a, a smaller physical stature can, can take care of if the stronger person in the relationship is down or if you need someone to come do it, you don't necessarily need to have a big strong guy type thing. Or if you're injured, you're more likely to be able to continue with it. So if we look at something like chickens and if we're in a situation where what makes sense for us is run chickens and tractors, uh, they can be quite heavy to move. Uh, even a smaller chicken tractor for, let's say, you know, uh, eight to a dozen hens can be a, a, a kind of a, a difficult thing to move for a smaller person. Uh, where if we do something with quail and we can run, you know, we can easily run something along the neighborhood of, um, you know, eight to uh, a dozen quail in something like a two foot by three to four foot small tractor. And we can move that, that tractor easily in between rows of garden beds and things like that. And we can get a lot of eggs out of that. We could have a couple of those and we could have one that's mainly for breeders and egg layers. And we could then use those eggs and incubate them. And we could produce maybe two tractors at a time. And if we're doing it for meat, we could, in a same size tractor, maybe raise 16 of them. So 32 per meat cycle. And a, a small child can move that. Where a small child is probably not going to move something that's more like a true chicken tractor. 
Rabbits are going to be in a stationary rack system. Children can take care of rabbits easily. Quail could go into a rack system versus that. Um, so those two in particular, quail and rabbits, have a lot of potential to be infinitely flexible and very forgiving if you twist an ankle, if you get sick. Uh, if one partner has to step up and do all the work for a few days while the other partner's away or down for some reason. So that's a good thing to think about because if that's what you're going to end up doing, properties that you didn't think were you know large enough, big enough, perfect enough, whatever, become very much so. I also think that if you wanted the, the best you can do as far as production, you're looking at aquaculture. Now, it can be, it can be aquaponics. But it doesn't have to be. You can have a few IBCs with a mechanical filtration system and be raising tilapia with a breeding pair and a fish tank in your house, for instance. And you can grow those to a pound and a half in seven to eight months. You can grow catfish that way and not worry about them dying because it gets cold outside. If you have a pond, stocking with catfish and feeding them pellets is like the easiest protein yield you'll ever get in your life. So these are other things to think about that don't require a lot of physical effort And that gives us more freedom to do things that we want to do or that are profitable for us. Um, we also need to think about, you know, we call the vegetative production. And really, I'm breaking those down into annual gardens, perennial plantings, and mushroom production. So your perennial plantings are your bushes, your trees, your vines. Anything you plant that comes back over and over again, fruit trees, grapes, you name it, is your perennials. Mushroom production, there's a lot of different ways to do that. We've done whole shows on it, so I won't go into it deeply. But I would say a small area dedicated to something like shiitake production can do a lot for you. Inoculating Kingstrophoria into the mulch in your annual gardens gives you a yield you literally do no work for, and they will often go perennial and come back year after year after year if you just keep giving them more feedstock, which is more mulch that you should be doing anyway. Um, you could also do Kingstrophoria and things like I'm doing it this year in a swimming pool. The little swimming pools we use for the ducks, we have one that wore out. I had a five-pound block of spawn. I layered it, a layer of wood chips, a layer of spawn, a layer of wood chips, a layer of spawn, poked a couple more holes in it so it would drain a little better. And when I'm back in my little nursery area, I feel the wood chips, if they don't seem quite wet enough, I wet it down. We'll get a buttload of strophoria out of that. And then all of that stuff will be massively inoculated with spawn and can be used to create more mushrooms. So that's another thing that you can do that starts to make you realize, if I have a sh like I look at a property and there's this like shady, cool area in it, and I'm like, man, this is a bust. I can't do anything there. Well, you can do mushrooms there. That's a great place for your rabbits because they're going to stay cool. Now, maybe if you have really cold winters, not so much. But if it's shady because it's a deciduous tree area, and in the winter those leaves are going to be gone and the sun's going to come in, and you, then you have a perfect environment for rabbits or even an outdoor quail setup. So we need to be thinking about the food production portions with these concepts in mind, or we still be remain convinced that we need 80 acres. And, and many of us would really be better off without it. Or we'd even be better off if we had it, like I said, it's 78 acres of freaking hunting land, it's a couple acres of chicken tractor pastures, and it's like the real intense food production's on a half to a quarter of an acre and, and doing these types of things. And I, I just, I don't want to discourage anybody that's like, what, am I, what I want to do is find 20 acres and go full-time with pastured poultry and po poultry and pork. That's great. And what I would say is, okay, then you, what you are is you have a homestead and you have a homestead business that is farming. 
and you're a full-time farmer and that you're using that additional land as farming land and the homestead is still that bubble of that you know quarter acre, half acre around the actual dwelling. And if we think that way, we start separating those enterprises. Homesteading is what we do for us. Farming is an occupation that provides for us. Because we're not going to need 20 acres to tractor broilers on if we're only producing them for ourselves and maybe our immediate family. We're going to raise 100 a year. Two, ro two runs of 50, two tractors, eight weeks, how much land do you need? I mean, that's, that's breaking down the numbers right there. You want to do 100 broilers a year, do them in two runs of 50, you split your runs into 25 birds apiece, you build two tractors, they're probably eight foot by eight or four by 12 or something like that. You figure out how to fit on your property, how many moves you're going to make, one a day, how much land do you need? Not that much. Not that much. A hundred chickens is a lot of freaking chickens for one family. Um, it's a ton. It really is. It's, uh, it's getting up there on a half a ton of weight, actually. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a good level of production. So be thinking that way. And in all of this, we have to consider our lifestyles. So are you going to be working a job? If you're going to be working a job, what's going to be perfect for you as a homestead is going to be different than if you're not. And, well, eventually I'm not going to be working a job. I don't care. Unless you have a hard set timeline, like I'm going to be working a job for one more year, all the numbers work out, we know this is what we're going to be doing, we're going to move to this place, I'm going to commute like hell, I'm going to be miserable for a year, but I know the light's at the end of the tunnel, again, all the numbers are in the Excel spreadsheet, it works out, we're going to be able to, by the end of that year, take a big chunk of money and pay down this property, and then I can be free of work, and I can go to contracting part-time. Fine, then you can say that. But if it's like, well, someday, then you have to look at this like for the next 20 years you're going to have a job. If that scares you, good, and it'll make the number shorter. Okay, You have to look at it that way because you'll burn out if you don't. And it's not just about proximity to work. And when I say working a job, I mean working a job that you physically go to in this, at this level. Go to the other way next. There's a, a fundamental reality. Animals don't care that you have to work late at the office. Animals don't care that you um, have an extra meeting. Animals don't care that it's Christmas. Animals don't care that you stubbed your toe. Animals don't care that the dog ate your homework. Animals don't give a shit. They just know that they need food and water and care on a daily basis. When you're working a job and you're gone eight hours a day, then the, the best case scenario is you're gone ten. That's, that's what the best case scenario of a job takes out of a person's life is 10 hours a day. Between going to work in the morning, getting ready to go to work in the morning, fighting traffic on the way home. If you have a job where you commute 10 minutes there and 10 minutes back, you are one, of, one very lucky person. There's not a lot of people like that. So because of that, you got to just do some math right now. We've got a 24-hour day, 10 hours a day is gone. Five days a week for most people. Some people work six, seven days a week. Let's just say it's five, best case scenario. Okay, so of those five days a week, we're down from 24 hours to 14 that are available. You should be sleeping seven, eight hours. So now we're down to seven. You got to eat dinner. You take an hour, now you're down to six. You should have some recreation in your life, some activity in your life outside of just working. So now you're down to four. And then sometimes you get parts of the year, you get home, it's already dark out. You see what I'm saying? 
When you have a job, especially a two-working household, two-family working household, you don't have a lot of time during the week to do things. And that means that when you're buying a property for a homestead in that part of your life, you need to be thinking about ultra-efficient use of your time that goes into homesteading so it doesn't become something that sucks the life out of you, rather that rebuilds the life in you. You know, the, I, I didn't do anything with livestock when I had a job in our place in Arlington. I could have done rabbits or something. I thought about it. In the end, what I realized was the, the gardening I'm doing brings me fulfillment. I get home. I'm not human. I've got corporate ick all over me. I grab a beer. I go outside. I water my garden. I pull some weeds. I pick a pepper. I pick a tomato. Uh, I listen to the birds. I, I sit at the pool and look at the garden. It provides a lot of food for us. I have my composting system. That was enough for now. Now, I would have not really chosen that property for a homestead. And if I had to go back to that lifestyle of having a job, I think I would look to do more. But I would be very cautious about how I did it. And if I was going to do anything with livestock, I would probably go to fish first. I could automate the shit out of that. You know, I could have automated feeder. Uh, rabbits, I can, I can set rabbits up where they basically need my attention for 10 minutes a day. And I can save the things that are more complex and more time-consuming for, you know, a Saturday or what have you. And if I don't butcher a rabbit this week, it's not like a, a, a game or a, a Cornish cross chicken that's going to have its leg broken or have a heart attack in two weeks. I can just wait. So if you're going to be working a job, your, your version of a homestead for that duration is going to probably be different. And then is it one or two of you working full-time jobs? That's another thing to look at. The next is working from home. But I'm talking about working full-time here. And if you're working full-time from home, you may be, be of the belief that you'll have a lot more time to do your home-setting stuff. And you probably will, but you still have a job to get done. And a lot of us have jobs that are eight-hour jobs that if nothing bothered us, if everybody left us alone and we just did our freaking job, we could do it in five or six hours. And if that's you, then great. But you better make sure that it's going to work for your employer. So they're not going to be... Because I know people that work from home um, that are salespeople. That unless they're out on sales calls, when they're at home, they're, they have to be logged in. And the guy that they work for does the following. If you're on the road, he has an app that you have to turn on that shows your location from your cell phone. So if you said, I have three sales calls today, and I'm taking somebody to lunch and whatever, you file your sales report for the day your phone better match up with what you said you did. And when you're home, you have to be logged in. It actually monitors how many keystrokes you make, where you are. You, 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 when, you, when you're logged into his system to be contacting employees and stuff like that, basically it sends an alert if you go to Facebook. right? So uh, if you're w with somebody like that, I don't know, maybe you could, like Homer Simpson did with the yes, yes, yes with the bird. I don't know if anybody remembers that. But I don't know, maybe you could make something, make some keystrokes or something. But in the end, you're going to work for the full time that you have to work. Then there's, you know, work from home jobs that really, you know, all they're monitoring is your productivity. So that might work a little bit better. But one way or another, you will have more time. Because if nothing else, those two hours a day that you would spend commuting, you get those back. And you're here and you can see something. And most people that work from home can take five minutes to run out and make sure the waterers are filled or if something breaks and they notice that they can go fix it or what have you. But it's still, you need to be in a very efficient model. Don't lure yourself into believing you can be a full-time farmer with a full-time job working from home unless it's only one spouse that's doing that. Okay? Then you can, the other person's job basically is being the full-time farmer type person. 
All right. Next is a home-based business. This gives you a lot more flexibility. Um, it's about 2.20 uh, in the afternoon right now as I'm at this point of recording the show. I will probably be done with my show and most of my day by 4 o'clock today. Uh, that's because I had a lot of stuff I took care of this morning. Uh, but I could have flipped that around if I wanted to. I could have gotten up at 7 o'clock this morning, uh, made tea, walked in my office by 7.15 and been recording by 7.45. I would have been done hours ago. So instead of doing that, because the, the mornings are cooler right now and it's very humid this time of year in North Texas, um, I did all of my little things that I wanted to get done, you know, a couple hours of work outside this morning and didn't actually get even into answering emails until like 10.30. So I have that flexibility where if I had a job, I don't. The only person I answer to is me. Now, with a home, home business or a business you operate from home, is, I think, a better way to look at it. That doesn't always mean that you have complete flexibility. Dorothy's business involves customers showing up and sometimes having to stop what you're doing and going to take care of the customer. That just happened. About 30 minutes ago, I paused the recording because she got home with our grandson. He's spending the night with us tonight. She went to take a, go to the bathroom, right? And, and, and she's like, I'll come play with you in just a minute, talking to our grandson. And then before she's even out of the bathroom, there's a customer out at the gate, you know, texting, needing her assistance. It doesn't take that long, but depending on what you do, there's that type of situation where with a home business, you can have these interruptions where the customer has to come first. And when you own your own business, you'll work harder than you ever will as an employee. Don't over-romanticize that. So you have to build that into your quest for a homestead and, and designing your homestead and understanding that you're going to think, well, I'll have all this time to you know, play with chickens or whatever it is, and you may not. So again, then we're, we're looking for the homestead that fits the business as well as the dream. And the business might be part of the dream. I don't know. It's up to you, but you see what I'm saying. We then have to start looking at things like, for instance, again, I had to have good Internet access, not low-end crappy DSL that wasn't much better than dial-up. I can't run my business on something like that. Not satellite internet. I had to have good cable modem or good DSL service available. That severely limited my choices. If your home business is going to be something where you need warehouse or storage space, then you're really looking for something without buildings and things like that. Or if you're doing educational training, resources to be able to do that. That's part of what we do here. So all of those things have to be you know, considered in finding a place. And then there is the person that's a full-time homesteader or homestead business. This is different than having just a home business. So if your business actually is homestead-related, so the homesteading activities are activities within the business, you have a great deal of freedom then. Because you might put in that six hours or eight hours of work in a day, but it was all the things that needed to be done on the homestead anyway, and that's a revenue generation model. It's tricky because making a living as a farmer, which is what a lot of homestead-type businesses are, is harder than people think. But there are a lot of ways around doing that. And there's a lot of different things that can be done with foraging and crafting and stuff like that. So it all depends on what your revenue model is. And then there's, there's you know kind of hybrid businesses. There's a person that's a professional artist that has an outbuilding and they do metal sculptures. And they have a lot of flexibility. And most artists, you know, they're going to work for two hours and go, I just don't have it right now, and go out and feed pigs or something, and then 
come back in and be inspired. It might work at two o'clock in the morning, not because they have to, but because that's when you know genius hits you. But in all of these things, whether you're going to be working a job, working from home, have a, a business based at home, or being full time in homesteader activities, change is what really is optimum for you. Because some of you would be full time homesteaders this way. You're basically retired. Or you're going to go to a one-family member income. The other person's going to work from home somehow, very part-time, two to three hours a day, five days a week. And they're going to be full-time on the homestead activities, providing food for the household, as opposed to going out to earn money to be able to buy those resources. So all of those different dynamics, and if you have a transitional plan, you have to buy something that fits where you are and where you're transitioning to. And if you go to look with that, what's going to happen is it's going to be sad at first because you're going to start eliminating a lot more properties. But when you find the right properties, you're going to be willing to work for, negotiate for, and remain unemotional with because you're going to know this one really works. And you're going to be able to figure out how to make a property that doesn't work, work. Okay? Um, next, most of us are doing this for freedom. So if you want freedom, make sure you define what that means for you. Okay? This is you know absolutely the case. Now, I think it goes without saying, over the years, I've said it so many times, but no HOAs. HOAs are the devil. Um, now, there are certain things that are HOA-like, or in the cases of like a property, property we used to own, like community covenants, that were very straightforward, very specific to a few things, and closed-ended. So, for instance, one of the places we lived, there were uh, build, uh, all uh, structures had to have composite roofs or better. Um, no more than one dwelling per five acres, okay? So a permanent full-time dwelling, uh, which may or may not work for you, but that's I'm just telling you that's what it was. And um, there was a couple other things, none of them we found objectionable, but the final statement on the covenant is, these shall not be amended or added to. So these are the rules, but there will never be more. We are done. That I can work with. The problem with HOAs, even if you have an HOA where certain things are allowed, if enough people decide, you know, blue-haired biddies, et cetera, decide they don't like that anymore, uh, they can take over the board and they can make them not allowed, and then they use the force of the state against you. HOAs are for people that say, you know what, just don't have enough government in my life. I just need another layer. So I don't trust HOAs. I don't want anything to do with an HOA, and I would not buy a property in an HOA. If you want to, Go ahead, but just realize you've created another layer of government in your life. That's what you do when you buy a house in an HOA. And their goal of, inc of increasing property values over time is such that your children will not be able to afford to buy the house you live in. That's, that's just what they do. Next, define what you want to do and what you want to be able to do and check, double check codes, zoning, and laws. Okay? And what I, what I mean is you don't make a phone call to the city and say, is it okay to keep chickens in this area? And they say, okay, and you're like, okay, good, I'm good. I mean, you need to make sure that's the case. You need to make double sure that's the case. You need to write down the names of people you talked to that told you that was the case. Uh, you need to go in and say, can I see the codes that apply to these things or the laws and regulations that apply to these things? What is the zoning of this area? You need to know. Um, and the more you want to do, the more you need to know. Because you can find some places, sure, you can have chickens, but if you want to build a shed, you got to get a zoning variance if it's over six feet high or some other stupid shit, or it can't be X number of feet from your fence or what have you. So 
I'm really all about finding the places with the least amount of regulation possible, but even then, check and double check. Um, the biggest thing, though, is evaluate the neighborhood with a critical eye. And even in rural neighbors, neighborhoods and stuff like that, there still is a neighborhood. To, okay, It may not look like one because the houses are stretched out more or whatever, but if you drive around a place and it has things that make city people go, I don't like that, it doesn't look nice, it's messy, that's probably a good place to live, as long as it's not like meth labs and shit like that. Right, but if it's like there's you know you drive down the road and there's chickens walking around in a guy's front yard and nobody seems to care, then you, you probably have a good area. Now, the other side of this, there's a lot of people that I've seen very very upset that really only have themselves to blame. They buy properties like this. They buy properties without fencing. They buy properties in these rural to semi-rural areas where people let dogs run loose. They get chickens, and dogs kill their chickens. Okay. Um, I believe, I believe that it is really the responsibility of the dog owner to fence the dog in above your responsibility to fence the dog out. I also believe in freaking reality in the real world. The real world. And the truth is, if you're buying a property like that, you're the new person. The people that live there have been living the way they've been living a long time. You wouldn't want anybody coming to tell you to change what you've been doing. They let dogs run loose in that area and come what may. I mean, the dog might get shot, run over, whatever, but they do it. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying they do it. So if you buy a property like that and you see that dogs run loose, you need to budget in fencing if you don't have it. And you need to budget in predator protection for animals and things like that as well. Okay? You just have to. Then if you don't, you're going to end up unhappy. You also need to look at is, you know, is there any kind of indication by evaluating neighborhoods that they're not going to be receptive to what you're going to do or things like that? It, it helps if you can to talk to some people. Um, but we didn't talk to people very much here because we noticed that everybody had perimeter fencing. Most of the houses were set back from the fencing. And you have to go through somebody's gate without an invitation, to be able to even say, hey, can I talk to you? We liked that. Some people would not. But what it meant to us is that there weren't a bunch of dogs running loose around here and that people respected each other's space and privacy. And we found out soon enough that most people were very friendly. And we were able to talk to two of the neighbors before we made a final decision, and that was nice. But it was more like luck. Like you see the guy at his mailbox looking at the house. Hey, how you doing? My name's Jack. We're thinking about buying this place. What can you tell me about it? That type of thing. So not like asking them about themselves where they feel intruded upon, but we're thinking about moving here. You know, How's the neighborhood? Do you like it here? What were the people like that lived here before? It's things like that. And then the person, people start volunteering information. It's a, it's a great way to do things if you can. You can't always do that, but it's a great way to do things if you can. But really evaluate the neighborhood. And if the things you want to do are already going on, it's generally, not always, but generally a home run. It can still be the situation where it's going on here and there around everybody, but the people right around you aren't doing it, and there's no one, you know, one property over doing it, and when you do it, they're going to bitch. So you still need to know if it's legal or not. Do they have a leg to stand on if they complain? In our situation, again, there's no, there's not a thing they can do about it. When the one neighbor told me, we really wish that guy didn't have cows on his property, there's nothing we can do about it, I thought, that's a, that's a good thing. And when I heard roosters crawling down the road, I thought, that's a good thing. 
I don't want to be a disruptor. I don't want to cause any problems, but I also want to be able to live my life the way I want to. So the more you can find that, the better off you are. Um, let's talk a little bit about economics here. Let's talk about things you almost always pay less for if they're already done. The big ones are outbuildings, ponds, fencing, and roofing. Generally, doing those things to a property are only done for the purpose of I'm going to be here and I want to use them or they're necessary in order to sell them. So I don't put a new roof on a house to make it sell for more money. I put a new roof on a house because the old one's not going to pass inspection and I want it to be able to sell. But it's not going to appraise for sufficiently more. So if the roof on it is adequate, here's what I'm saying. So the roof's adequate. It's probably going to need to be replaced in the next 10 years, but it's adequate. Um, and I put a brand new roof on. The, the addition and the appraised value will not exceed the cost of the roof. So if a new roof's on a house, that's a good thing for you as a buyer, not necessarily a good thing for the seller. Other than it, it does alleviate that concern and make their house more marketable. But they're not going to get a good ROI on roofing. Um, outbuildings. When I look at the outbuildings that are on my property, I think to myself, there's no way that those two buildings could be built with poured foundation slabs, the steel frame, the insulation, the garage, the doors for under $50,000 for a property I paid two hundred and five for. Now, I'm not saying the guy paid that much money when he put them in. They might have been put here you know, 25, 30 years ago um, when it was a lot less expensive to do work like that, but... There's, I, I couldn't have bought this property, then put those buildings on it, and then sold it for $50,000 more, let alone sold it at a profit over the expense of those buildings. So as a buyer, when I see quality out buildings, I know I'm getting them at a discount, if that makes sense. Okay, um, Ponds. Ponds you can make money with, but you usually don't. Uh, so ponds that have been put in and have matured or in good condition, generally add more value to a property than you could get by you know putting it in yourself, unless you're skilled with equipment, you just rent the equipment and do it yourself. Okay? Generally, especially larger ponds. We're not talking about little garden ponds like I have, but you start finding a piece of property with like an acre of water on it. Uh, if you priced putting that in and then looked at the price differential because that water's there, in most instances, you're making a profit the day you buy the property. That doesn't mean do it, but it is one of the economic things to consider if your goal is to have that water on the property eventually anyway. Um, so almost all infrastructure, especially homestead-style infrastructure, is less expensive to buy already installed as long as it's done right. Fencing is another one. I mean, you price fencing, it's extremely expensive, especially if you have someone do it for you. But the materials alone are expensive. It generally doesn't add that much value to a property, especially if all the properties in the area are routinely fenced. But if you find a property that needs fencing, you need to figure out what that cost is going to be. And does it even make sense to fence the whole thing or defense part of it and different types of fencing for different areas? But when you find a place that's like perimeter fence with things that will hold your animals in, that's a huge, huge win. Again, almost all infrastructure. Things you tend to pay more for if they've already done them for you. Carpet. Um, when, you, when I look at a house and it has crappy carpet, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited. That means the seller's a dumbass. 
I have never sold a property with poor quality carpet in it in my life. Every time we've had a house to sell with a carpet was worn or whatever, put new carpet in. They sell so much faster, so much better. And I put, I'll put the cheapest freaking carpet I can get in there um, if I'm doing that. If I'm going to buy it for myself, I put good quality carpet in. But, I mean, when you find a house with poor quality carpet, um, just go down to the box stores, Home Depot and Lowe's, and give them a basic square footage and say, what would this carpet cost? And they're going to be like, we have to come out and we have to pay $50 for our guy to measure everything. It's re Shut up. What is the cost of this carpet right here installed? Per square foot, I'm going to estimate it for myself. So I'm, making a, I'm going to buy the house or not yet. I haven't bought it yet. And they'll help you, and you figure that out. And you'll find that a lot of times you can negotiate even further down because the, sh the house doesn't show well. Um, another thing is paint. When I walk into a house and it like has a crappy paint job or it hasn't been freshed up in the paint, I mean, paint's cheap by the gallon. Most of us can you know, paint a wall. So that's another thing that, that, that gives you a good buying opportunity. Kitchens. Um, this is a toss-up because the uh, kitchen remodels are a pain in the ass and they're disruptive and what have you. And remodeling a kitchen is one of the smartest things you can do because it sells a house because no one wants to do it. But if you go into a house with a kitchen that has an easy remodel to do that hasn't been done, it can often be a great buying advantage. And the same thing I just said applies to bathrooms. And bathrooms can be very expensive to remodel, or they can be very affordable to remodel and make look quite nice. And a lot of times you'll find that what, what people will tend to do is they'll put the remodel budget into the master because it sells the house, and they might have a second or a third even bathroom, smaller bathrooms that they really haven't remodeled that are out of date. Those look poor quality. They drag down the house the way it shows, but you could just budget in, you know, 3000 bucks here, so six grand to do them both, and... You, you may also say, you know what, well, this is going to be like the true guest bathroom downstairs and what, what have you that people use and the kids use, so we're going to want it to be nice. The one upstairs is good enough. We'll paint it and call it a day. I mean, that's kind of where we're at with ours. Um, the, the upstairs bathroom is truly for guests that stay over. You, if you don't think it looks nice enough, well, don't stay at my house. Right, So one day we may get to that, but it wasn't a big concern going in. So those are things to all consider in your negotiations, what you're willing to give a little more for and what you're willing to push a little harder to have a little bit more taken off for. Um, things you should not get into your heads is being easy and simple for a house that's not going to work or you just think, oh, it'll be great, we'll just do this. Additions. So many people buy houses and go, there's so much land out there, we could easily put an addition on the house. They have no idea what it's going to cost. It's a major, major freaking project. Almost always never happens. So it's fine to think about it, but you can't price it in like, boy, once we do that, that'll be great. Because you don't know if you're ever going to get to that. That's a major thing. The next is removing walls. Um, we'll just take this wall out and open this whole space up. It may work. It may not. Unless you have the knowledge to crawl up in the crawl space and verify whether that thing's load-bearing or not, man, don't plan on it. And then the other thing to look at is, well, what's in that wall? You know, sometimes people think they're going to remove a wall, and there's, there's plumbing in that wall they didn't expect to be in that wall because it made sense for the builder who never thought that wall was going to come down, and now you've got rerouting of plumbing or rerouting of electric that's not just the switches in that wall. So... I would say about half the time I've heard people say they're going to take a wall out they end up not doing it because there's an extreme expense beyond just knocking a wall down. Uh, and it doesn't really work out. Or a lot of times people think, well, I'll knock this wall down and open this kitchen up. But then they realize, well, that would be great, except there would be no cabinets then. 
because there's no wall to put the cabinets on anymore. So don't get. I'm not saying not to do additions and and wall removals and and full remodels and things like that. I'm just saying don't make your buying decisions about property with that in mind. Like if if the house won't work the way it is with easy modifications. Be very careful before you make determinations like I'm going to do these types of things. Doesn't rule it out, but don't just like, oh, we'll just do that and it'll be fine and forget about it. That's that's not the way to handle that. But in the end, what I want you to understand, homesteading is something you can do almost anywhere. It really would do you well to define your dream. What is your what is your ideal homestead like? What is perfection? And then define well, what is halfway to perfect? You know, what, and halfway to perfect is something I think we should be willing to settle for if we have to. Not because we should, but if we, if we get to a point where we're like, okay, this is a better target for us in our lives right now. It's, it's halfway to perfect. And then, th- then start checking your perfection, okay? Not check your privilege, check your perfection. So what I mean is people will, will write out this, this, this soliloquy for their lives of what their homestead would be like, but they don't think about the work that goes along with it. How much work it would be to have, you know, five head of cattle or whatever you decide you want or, you know, eight, eight acres of pasture. And well, how many animals do you need to maintain that? Are you going to be out there doing a lot of mowing, one or the other, right? And how much is work is that? And how does that? So then you might start finding that these, these big dreams, if you actually tried to implement them, could become big nightmares. And that might help you actually redefine what perfect really is. And I think what most of us want out of a homestead is the following. You tell me if I didn't sound like I'm in your head right now. Number one, I want to be left alone to do the things that I want to do. That's probably the most important thing. Two, I want enough space to be able to live comfortably on the outside and the inside. I want enough space to be able to live comfortably. Number three, I don't want to constantly be fixing stuff. I want things in good repair. I want a solid structure. I want a good, comfortable home that's safe for my family. Next, I want to be able to produce some of the things that I eat and consume. Number five, I want the opportunity possibly to earn some level of income off of what I'm doing. Number six, I want to be able to enjoy my property. I want to be able to make it into what I want out of it. And I want to be able to actually not just have it be that, but enjoy it when it gets here. I don't want it to be a burden once I get it to that level. And that will help you refine what really is perfect for you. I'm telling you, there's a lot of people that think they need 25 acres. It'd be good with two and a half. You could do a lot worse than a one-acre property with a rabbit tree, uh, some quail, like a quail in an aviary like I have, uh, and a few, few ducks running around. You know, Something similar to what I'm doing, maybe a lot less. I mean, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. I mean, without Dorothy having you know pretty much freedom to do it, there's no way we could run a flock of over 100 birds that are producing nine dozen eggs a day right now. I couldn't do it. I could not run this business and do what she's doing to collectively together at the same time, right? And you know, when you have a property this size, it opens up other opportunities that are small opportunities. So here's one of my opportunities, and get in touch with me if you want to take advantage of it. Um, We have coming um, this week, actually, now that I look at it, um, turkeys. We have turkeys coming. And uh, those turkeys are going to be far more turkeys than we need to have. Um, 
So I have 15 broad-bested bronze coming this week, and um, they'll do very well on my land, and they'll require very little work. My processor that processes turkeys processes them not for resell. So I can't process them and then sell turkeys. I probably want to keep five. I probably want to sell ten. I'm thinking somewhere in the neighborhood of $3 a pound for the processed wheat. So my thought is we sell you the turkey, and then I take it to the processor for you. And then you just pick it up or something like that. We'll work it out. But if anybody's interested in a turkey that's local to the North Texas area that's been pastured, and they'll be big birds. My smallest bird last year was 27 pounds. So at $3 a pound, a 30-pound turkey is 90 bucks. If that's my average and I do 10 that I sell, it's $900. It's almost $1,000. bucks, And we'll probably get enough over 30 pounds that we'll make about $1,000 for letting 15 turkeys run around our property. If I didn't have... Dorothy to help me with like the ducks. I'm going to have a much smaller duck flock just for home production or enough to sell to a few random customers or something like that to pay for their feed and then do things like that in the cuz like the beauty with that is the turkeys come, they have a few weeks of real intent. We have to keep an eye on them so they don't kill their damn selves cuz turkeys are stupid, they really are. So we have about 2 to 3 weeks where I have to kind of keep up on them and we just let them run around the property. They don't cause any trouble. I was surprised. I thought they would be as bad as chickens. They're not. They cause no trouble. They do their own thing. They're pretty damn bulletproof once they get feathered out and all. And uh, on graduation day, they go to the processor. And I can, you know, probably have, I'm betting I'll have and feed into them about $400. I get five pastured turkeys and make a profit of $500 for very little work. That fits on a small urban rural French homestead like we have right here. That fits beautifully. And that's the type of thing that you can do that there might be quite a bit of work, but there's an end to the work. So about the end of September, beginning of October, turkeys will graduate to Turkey University, Turkey and Turkey and Stuffing University, and then there's no more work for them until next year. That's another way to plant things. Like Remember we talked about chicken tractors for meat? Well, if we do chicken, you know, uh, broilers, we have eight weeks Two months, turkeys, chickens are done. Maybe we take two months off, we run a fall run, eight weeks, chickens are done, rest of the year we're not doing anything. These are ways to think about how to manage a homestead in a way that, that gives you the freedom to get away. Our biggest complaint, honestly, with our little homestead, is if I want to go to wine country for a week with my wife, it's not getting away from work that's hard anymore, I'll shut the business down for a week. Sorry, guys, I'm entitled to a vacation like anybody else. So I know some people complain that I took too many vacations or something or whatever, but in the end, I need freedom so I can do a good job for you guys. But we have to make sure that we have somebody that can take care of all these animals for a week, which includes feeding them, caring for them, fixing things that go wrong, interpreting something's not right so they know to make a correction, cleaning and packaging the eggs. makes a lot more sense for us to go away on the, the down season when they're not laying as much because it's less work. But the biggest down season is the molt. That's the middle of summer. Can't do it. That's when the plants are stressed. I need to be here. We've learned not to go in midsummer. It doesn't work out well for us when we do. So you need to really think about what you're doing when you say you want your own homestead. Because intensive wicking bed gardening and you know a few little quail and stuff like that could do so much for you. And for many of you, that's, that's all it needs to be, at least as a starting point. 
I hope this show has been a good starting point. And let me say, I don't want anything that I said today that might seem somewhat negative to take you away from what you really want from your homestead. If you want to be full-time, you want a herd of cattle, you want to pasture poultry, you want to pasture pork, God bless you, go for it. We need 60,000 you know, 60, new farmers a year for the next 10 years, honestly, to replace the people going out of business because they're old, tired, and don't want to work anymore. But if you just want a little place where you can homeschool your kids and have them growing up knowing where their food comes from and have a high quality of life and having a, a spouse that still works full-time and that's what you want, you want to be close enough to go to the drive-in movies or whatever, or to you know because they are making a comeback, right, or to, to just a regular theater or to a shopping mall, and you want to be close enough to be able to do that when you want to, uh, for, for you ladies to have a girls' night, for you guys to have a guys' night, whatever it is, then you should have that. No one can define for you what the perfect homestead is. You have to define it for yourself. You have to find the property that is the building block capable of becoming it. And then remember what we said. Homesteads are created not by builders, but by their owners. Then you have to create it. And I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to find that some of the things you want are going to change over time. And you're going to have to adapt to those changes and make those changes for what works best for you. Not because you told somebody you were going to do it and now they're going to think you failed. You can't do that. If you do something that's making you miserable only because somebody else said you wouldn't be able to do it, that's not a good reason. You do the things that work for you, that are the best for you, that are the best for your family. And I believe what's best for America is millions of people to go back to the concept of homesteading. From the suburbs to the remote properties, to the urban-rural fringe, and back. On that note, as we wrap up today, if you want to support the work I do so I can continue to bring this great content to you, including a show now that's almost 100% in the hands of its listeners, join the Member Support Brigade. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. Guys, I could not do this show without my supporting members. It would be impossible. You guys enable everything that I'm able to do, so if the show's important to you, consider becoming a member and then get the discounts that more than pay for your membership. On that note, I have an announcement today. We actually have a change from one of our existing members. Comfrey is something every homesteader should be growing. And uh, we have new special pricing from Marsh Creek uh, Farmstead on their comfrey. Here's what they have now. You can get 50 cuttings for $35, bucks, 75 for $51, 100 comfrey cuttings for $69, and $125 for $85. Bucks. Uh, this is a guy that's got a homestead business. He's making money from his homestead selling comfrey. And comfrey can be sold as cuttings like this, where people can actually, you know, he's making money in a direct model. But, you know, products from comfrey, like making fertilizers from comfrey and selling that to local customers, or making comfrey salves, which are healing salves, and educating your customer base about that. So comfrey is a multi-tiered business opportunity. On that note, he's also now selling crown splits. So these are larger crowns instead of small cuttings. They grow faster and they produce more quickly. Uh, you can get three splits for $15, bucks, six for $30, or nine for $45. Bucks. So he's got good pricing. Those, that's, that's competitive with anybody out there on the comfrey world. And that pricing is specifically for MSB members. I'm always working to make it better for you guys. I really am. Uh, next up, if you want to support the show and you don't want to be a member or you just want to do more, 
and you want your life to be easy, most of you probably shop on Amazon from time to time. Go to tspaz.com. Yep, tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, one letter less than Amazon. Do your Amazon shopping through that link. That's all you got to do. You don't have to do anything else. It won't cost you any more money, and we'll get credit for your business on Amazon, and that helps us a great deal as well. You know me, I believe that you should keep business in the family when you can. That's why I started the TSP Business Directory. It's for members of this community to, to find each other and do business with each other on. Uh, today's uh, supporting business member of the TSP Business Directory is Jeremy Hawkins. He's an independent associate of Legal Shield. You can call 502-321-1608 and take five minutes to learn about Legal Shield with Jeremy or go to the show notes and there'll be a link to his listing on the business directory today as always. Remember, tspbiz.com is the place to find community members and to be found. And as a business owner, you should list your business Because it's as little as five bucks to have exposure to our 150,000 members of our community. Uh, we also rem remind you guys to do business on the uh, on the uh, network there to uh, to leave reviews because that helps everybody. It helps the provider and it helps other community members know who to do business with. I believe in the free market. This is the free market at work. By the way, the five bucks uh, is a base listing instead of adding like the enhancements. We only did that to kill spam. Uh, we don't really make much money off of that. Pretty much pays for the hosting space and uh, for my guy to take care of stuff on the site. But the day we did it, spam went to zero. I'm just saying. Last but not least, I have a uh, a cool song for you guys today. A song um, that I've heard a lot in the past, but I, I, I never played for you guys. And I haven't heard it, actually, for quite a long time. It's by Bruce Springsteen. And I chose it for today's show because it's called Homestead. In this case, it's actually about a town called Homestead in Kentucky. Uh, it's a it's a it's a sad song in a way. Um, it's about a guy finding a job in '73 and uh, rolling steel in a foundry in Homestead. And uh, actually, Homestead I think is further north, probably in Ohio or Pennsylvania, I would guess, uh, just based on the song. But he comes from Kentucky and moved north in '73. And uh, work beside guys who taught him how to stay safe. Uh, he said there's many, one of the guys that tried to, to help keep him safe told him there's many a man who lost the fingers from their hands. He could wind up crippled or dead in Homestead. So it's good work, but it's dangerous work. And by the time it's over, uh, he says, I got work tearing those old mills down till there's nothing left but the sweat and blood in the ground. So... That's a real story of what's happened in America is these industrial centers built up in the Midwest and Northeast. And uh, these men had jobs and worked hard and did all they could and, and did their best and, and really had jobs where people felt, felt like they were, they were family with each other. But eventually those types of jobs went away, and the only jobs that were left were tearing down the very thing that had provided for you. And I think that's why a lot of people want to homestead instead of live in homestead. They want to find a way where they know they can provide at least their basic means for themselves. And then everything gets easier. And we have a lot of things coming that are going to look like this in a lot of ways that people just don't understand yet. The evolution of technology and automation is going to cause more disruption in our economy than any time in history. I know many of you are older people like me that were around in the 70s and 80s when they said this back then. You know, robots would be, you know, cleaning pools or whatever and 
nobody was going to have a job anymore. And you, you kind of like, I've heard this song before, but the real song we're talking about here, the song about things getting disrupted, this time it is different. I want you to think about this. The largest taxi company in the country today is Uber. They don't own a car. They don't own a single car. The longest, largest property business in America today is Airbnb. They don't own a single piece of property. If you don't think that's just the beginning of disruption, and I know people are fighting back with the government guild level, right? The union, you hear about the union here, the union caving in. But this technology thing can't be stopped. And at the same time, we're talking about homesteading, like which is a very kind of ancient philosophy. Homesteading is as ancient as civilization itself. For as long as, as people have built dwellings, they have tended small crops and tended small livestock and sought to make their homes more than just a place to hang their hat. I think there's a place for both of these. And I think one necessitates the other. So I encourage you to build your life and build your dreams and not hang your dreams on the belief that something else will always work for you. Because I'm going to tell you what, if you went to these steel mills in the 60s and 70s and told these men that one day the very mills that they were in making steel, the steel around them that held the building up would be rusted to the ground, they'd have laughed at you and never believed you. They would have told you that job would always be there, that people would always need steel, and no one would ever choose anything but good quality U.S. steel. And yet, I've seen the buildings rusted to the ground. Don't think it can't happen, but don't be sorrowful for it. Be happy. Be excited about the new opportunities that will come and position yourself in your life to make the most of them. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. I was born in the cold fields of Kentucky. I moved north in 73. I was still going strong, so I found a job. Rolling steel, I found a reason home Beside a guy named Grisbowski He taught me how to keep safe Said there's many a man who's lost the fingers from their hands You can wind up people who's dead in homestead
There was nothing left but sweat and blood and ground. That night we took our little babies and feet. Still praise the red, white, and blue in home state. 